Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Hello everyone, thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Lou Cabrera, I'm the co-convener with Stephen Pop at this uh, Griffith Asia Institute Research Seminar. And we have the great privilege today of having with us Mr. Clinton Dines, Principal Morton Bay Partners, and an advisory Asia Institute. He's going to talk to us about China's current situation today. He's a fluent Mandarin speaker, has lived and worked continuously in the greater China region for 35 years, mostly in mainland China. He uh, retired in 2009 as president of BHP Billiton China, and throughout his career he specialized in both the strategies and business practices involved in negotiating, establishing, and operating Sino-Foreign Ventures in the management and development of foreign invested and operated businesses in China, so he has much to tell us today. To you. So we'll speak for you know 40 minutes, however you like, and then uh, open up for questions. Thanks very much, John, and thank you all for your interest uh, today. Um, thank uh, GAI for, for having me along, um, and I, I note the presence of some eminent uh, personages as well. My theme today. Uh, Apart from the way my bio sounds, um, apart from being a businessman, I actually did try to think about China while I was there. And, and it's less about having a, a discourse about China per se, but more about the prism through which we view China. Um, and I'll acknowledge, you know, in the, in the company of, of uh, academics and, and people who look at this stuff, very seriously, this isn't a well-developed or terribly cogent thesis. Um, let's put it in the category of a particularly rampant bee in my bonnet. Um, there's a lot of discussion about China, uh, about China's growth story, um, about whether that growth story is spluttering, uh, and about all of the impediments to China being able to continue to grow. Um, and there's lots and lots of very good reasons. There's a lot of discussion, obviously, about all of the, the really good reasons why, why China is, is likely to encounter significant drags on growth uh, from here on in. And you all, more or less, know the list. There's um, you know, the, the rich-poor gap, uh, the issues of demographics, of corruption, of environment, pollution, um, <clears throat> of misallocation of capital leading to spectacular excess capacity, uh, inefficient, inefficient financial system, uh, you know, lack of democratic representation, and manifestations of that, like volatile share markets and the, uh, <clears throat> the, the sort of failures to, to go on with the reform process, and uh, you'll, you'll hear conversations about over-reliance on an export-dependent, investment-driven growth model, etc., etc., etc. There's a very, very long list. Um, <clears throat> And, and I think discussion of all those is, can be very, very interesting, and if, if, if anyone wants to go there, we can, we can go there. Um, but I think it's, it's a pity we, we don't get to have um, the discussion about those issues in what I would characterise as a very fact-based manner. Um, and when I say we, uh, let me say, let me, it's, it's, it's the royal we. Um, the royal we of... Uh, the Western world, shall we say, and the, um, the narrative and the institutions of the established Western world order, you know, the established world order which is dominated by the Western world, and for our part, Australia is clearly a 
part of that and has been a significant long-term beneficiary. Um, so <clears throat> today, you know, well, I'm happy to have that conversation about China, but I'd like to sort of start the conversation from, uh, you know, the Socratic maxim of know thyself, in that I want to suggest that the way we think about China is governed by context, and as a result, our view is potentially distorted. Um, now, given that China is obviously becoming uh, much more important, influential in the world, um, I think there's an absolute <coughs> imperative that our view is clear and fact-based and not distorted by assumptions or predispositions. Uh, and I'm obviously suggesting that there are assumptions and predispositions uh, in play, and as a starting point, um, I'd like to suggest that you know, our, our propose our discussion be to examine some of the predispositions. What we believe about China has a lot to do with what we're willing to believe or conditioned to believe. Um, now, before I, I get too far, um, I'll pause briefly to suggest that there is a very important book that I would highly recommend that anyone interested in this should read uh, as a basis for um, thinking a bit differently, perhaps shifting your prism. Um, and it's called Western Images of China, and it was written by a fellow called Colin Kerris. Um, I think he's going to wander in today at some point. Um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's by coincidence um, that he happens to be the bloke who taught me about China in the first place. Um, and the book came out a long time after he actually taught me. Um, and it's it's um, it's you know it's a dense, uh, well-researched tome, um, and there are certainly other eminent Western world writers who have uh, touched upon or addressed the same topic. Jonathan Spence, in his books *The Chan's Great Continent*, um, *To Change China*, uh, have touched on it, and there's quite a few others, um, certainly sitting on on in, in my uh, bookshelf in my China library on this. But Colin's book brought a lot of clarity to me. And like I say, it was, it's interesting that it was written um, coincidentally by my old China professor a decade after he'd sent me off to China. Um, but the book came as something of a relief to me uh, as, a, as a young man relatively early in my career. Um, in that period of time, in the 80s, uh, I was there in China working in joint ventures and you know, business... And I was consistently quite challenged and perplexed by the, um, the rigidity and the certainty with which my uh, superiors and my elders and people who I also <coughs> regarded as um, uh, you know, studiously knowledgeable about China, who I would encounter, um, <clears throat> and they pronounced to me with great regularity uh, and a total assurance that China was getting everything wrong and that collapse was inevitable and imminent. Um, this is a very, very regular feature of conversation. You get to, you know, in the 80s, you go and see um, Sinologists working in the Western World embassies in, in, in China, in Beijing, or the famous you know, groups of China watchers sitting in Hong Kong, or China sinological uh, journalists and writers or Western world academics visiting, etc. It's amazing how consistent the themes were. And I, I, can't, I can't tell you how often, <laughs> as a young fella, um, 
you sort of patted on the head and sat down and it was patiently explained to me by these authority <coughs> figures um, what was going to happen. Now, <coughs> Colin's book, which came out in the late 80s, um, gave me a, a, a bit of history, a, a long uh, sort of view of history by which I came to understand or came to get some understanding of um, the pre-existing notions that were in the Western world's view of China and the Western images that we had and how those images actually played strongly into the narrative. Um, his book also gave me a marvellously descriptive phrase which I think helps to capture the nature of Western world thinking and imagery about China and I'll come back to that later. So the problem I had at that point as a young man with not so much knowledge or structure in the way I was um, thinking about it uh, is that what I observed and experienced and was able to conclude for myself was, was highly divergent with what I was being told. Um, and uh, to be honest, when you're young and you're not feeling much like, or feeling like you're able to uh, challenge authority figures, um, I, was, I was quite puzzled and a bit insecure about it for a long time, bit my tongue. And uh, later I began to sort of express uh, frustration. So eventually, with the help of books like Collins, etc., I started to try to analyse and think through why this might be so. What was I missing? Um, was I missing something? Were they missing something? Uh, why was it that when we both looked at the same things, we arrived at entirely different interpretations? So over the years, a lot of people have made very major pronouncements about China's impending implosion. Like I say, I used to like to say that I was, I was 36 years in China, and every year someone respected and authoritative would tell me conclusively that China was going to collapse next year. And it's still the case now, to some extent. Um, <clears throat> and you know, this, this thesis of impending implosion, and then because um, China, in their post-1978 reform and opening era, that was a very clear departure from the sort of the politicised ideological distractions of, of Chairman Mao, uh, much of this commentary and the impending implosion uh, uh, of China focused very much on sort of developmental, financial, economic, trade, business commentary. That, that seems to be where a lot of the commentary is focused. But it had um, political and systemic allusions and overtones. Now, there's a long and distinguished list of people who have made, you know, uh, apocalyptic predictions and pronouncements with respect to China. Um, I don't know any of you remember uh, a fellow called Nick Lardy who uh, discovered China's non-performing loans in 1996 and promptly pronounced that China was about to fall apart uh, you know, within a year or two. Um, <clears throat> a lot of other distinguished academics, uh, David Bean from Columbia Business School has written repeatedly about this. There's a, <coughs> a uh, a, a very popular book, at least popular in the United States, um, by a fellow called Gordon Chang, who was a long-term China-based lawyer, called The Coming Collapse of China, which came out in the early 2000s. China didn't collapse, so he reissued a second version of it about eight years later, sort of, you know, Coming Collapse of China version two. Um, and I dare say there'll be a version three. And he's a very popular talking head on CNBC and all these other things. The fact that he's wrong doesn't stop CNBC or Bloomberg from having him on again. Nouriel Roubini has repeatedly predicted this. 
uh, Edward Chancellor of GMO has been a loud one. Uh, the, the characters at Pivot Capital have talked about this. The head uh, Asia and China economist of Morgan Stanley, a fellow called Andy Sierre, was rampantly about China's impending collapse. <coughs> There's a, a very famous hedge fund manager in New York called uh, Jim Chanos, Kinnikos Hedge Fund, and uh, he's made lots of money uh, on scaring the hell out of people about China's impending collapse. He <coughs> goes quiet for six months, he sets up all his shorts, and then he gets on CNBC or something, <coughs> pronounces that China's about to collapse, and panics the market and makes lots of money as the share prices fall. This year, earlier this year, you had David Shambaugh writing the coming collapse of China, the, China's, the coming Chinese crack-up, he called it. Now, David's a, a Washington-based academic. I know him quite well. He's a specialist on Chinese military affairs in particular. And uh, his uh, article, I forget, came, not sure what it came out in, New Yorker or the New York Times or something like that, set, really set the cats running and, uh, and, and created a lot of um, conversation. Um, there's also been very, uh, you know, specific pronouncements by very respected organisations, OECD, the IMF, um, UNDP, World Bank, Asian Development Bank, International Energy Agency, the list, the list goes on. And, of course, uh, a recurring theme among Western world politicians, uh, prosecuting particular themes with respect to China, notably uh, Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham in the US, talking about China's currency and where that was um, and being taken up in a lot of other places. And the underlying theme, of course, was either the Chinese are not playing fair or they're systemically doing something wrong. The, one of the most famous ones I'll just show you is this. That's, that's 1998, The Economist. Um, and the thing, I mean, for people like me, I was incensed when I saw this. Uh, but you have to remember that period was as we were lurching towards Asian financial crisis. The consensus wisdom at the time, I had, <clears throat> I had a brawl with the internal BHP economics section. At that time, BHP had six economists. Don't have anyone now. Six economists. And the only question was, when are the Chinese going to devalue? And my answer was, they're not going to devalue. Wrong answer. So uh, the, all the official BHP forecasts for all project uh, outcomes was actually calibrated against a, an assumption that the Chinese would devalue. Um, and <clears throat> and you know, years later, after the fact, of course, they didn't. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't recall receiving the email that said, oh, Clinton, you were right. Um, but this is the sort of thing that prevailed because it suits a certain narrative. It suits a certain worldview. It suits a lot of things. And it's worth thinking about. And I'm trying to just provoke um, the contemplation of this. I, I do highlight, in fairness, that both Nick Lardy and The Economist uh, have since somewhat recanted on their views, and um, both are now very readable in, in terms of making a reasonably sincere attempt to uh, have a more fact-based platform, in, in my opinion. Um, and Nick Lardy is a a marvellous story in that respect. He he made a career in the first since about 1996 for about 10 years or so. Became the, the talking head and and was was, was a conference attender um, par excellence. 
on the topic of China's non-performing loans and how that was going to drag the whole edifice down. And if you read his recent stuff, it's very, very different. It's really, really worthwhile. The same with The Economist. They went from repeated China covers like this uh, and about six or seven years ago um, cleared out their Asia and China editorial desk in London and replaced the people that they had in China as well and have another, uh, another position now. Um, it's not that they're not critical, they are quite critical, uh, but it is a far more constructive position and more educational as far as I'm concerned. I've, uh, I've, I've renewed my uh, subscription a few years back. Now, if you look at that, that long list that I talked about, and there's a, there's, a, there's a myriad of others, what, what do these commentators and sources have in common? Well, they're prominent, they're distinguished, credible, Western world public experts, um, and publications, think tanks, policy agencies, investors, academics. They have good access to data, um, and by and large, they have exceptional analytical capacity. And they have all, over time, been 100% wrong. Um, not just once, consistently over time. Now, in fairness, partly that's due to the fact that China is hard to analyse. Um, why? Well, China is big, really, really big. Um, very complex, highly dynamic, especially in the last 30 years, rather <coughs> opaque on many levels, and it's an unfamiliar part of the world. It's not a part where most Western world agencies or commentators have actually had to apply their minds. China was the turf of a limited number of uh, mostly academic sinologists. Uh, most Western world trade ministries, most Western world departments of foreign affairs had a limited number of sinologists. And that's been... Uh, um, change, but you don't change that overnight, and actually it's been, um, <clears throat> in some instances, um, damaged in recent years. Um, when I was in Beijing, just before I, I moved from Beijing to Shanghai in 2002, the US Embassy political section uh, had six senior people, six assignees, of whom five of them were Chinese language speakers of the highest uh, State Department level, I think level six, isn't it? Um, by the time the neocons had finished, there was one. So all of the, <clears throat> the really good, well-trained, language-speaking sinologists got cleared out. And the same applied across the, the um, uh, other parts of the State Department and also in the Department of Commerce, the trade offices. Um, so you can actually do yourself a lot of damage in terms of your capacity to understand things by virtue of the prism through which you look at things and whether people are suitable, whether people are telling you what you want to hear or not. So China is hard to analyse. It's got that massive scale, high complexity, very dynamic, changing all the time. Uh, it is opaque and it is not something that we've, we're really well set up in terms of our mental thinking frameworks and our analytical frameworks. Um, access to good data is problematic. can be done, but it's problematic. It takes a bit of effort. China, of course, also comes from a different philosophical tradition in terms of the way they think about data and information. And also, you have to remember that China 
for the last 30 years has been undertaking a transformation unlike anything in human history. We don't have reference points in our developmental experience for what these guys are doing or have done. We don't have a reference point for how do you do this with 1.3 billion people. We don't have a reference point for how do you do an industrial and developmental transformation in a couple of decades. Didn't happen in any of our experiences. We don't have any of that. You can go back through your, your Angus Madison history of economics and try and find a reference point. There aren't any. So you're trying to analyse something where you don't have any benchmarks. The other is, of course, the other piece of, of the why it's hard to analyse is that partly culturally, because of how you have this um, predisposition not to share information, but there was almost a policy prescription um, uh, in the 1980s, in the early part of the reform and opening period, China did have that you know, post-cultural revolution reluctance to reveal anything. And post-1989, you remember Deng Xiaoping came out in the wake of 1989 with his 28-character dictum, uh, and several elements of that dictum were about deliberately keeping a low profile and flying under the radar. Um, and you hear that dictum repeated a lot. So I certainly heard it repeated a lot at different points. Also, there's a little bit of Sun Tzu in there too, a little bit of deliberate deception, the, the uh, uh, pretending you're going down this road when you're actually going down that road kind of stuff. Um, but you would think, you know, let's face it, we're, we're here in 2015. We are 36 years into the reform and opening period. You would think that over time, and with China becoming a higher priority, that observers and analysts would start to adjust their frameworks and get better at it. I certainly felt that way myself as China became more fashionable late 90s, early 2000s. I thought, well, you know, I'm, <coughs> I'm on my way to being out of a job here because more and more people are going to pay more and more attention. A lot of people will come up the curve. There'll be China experts to burn. And it, it didn't happen. Not, not in the way that I thought it would happen anyway. Um, so I put this down to um, one simple thing, which I think in this instance is very powerful. Um, and in analytical practice, it's referred to as confirmation bias. And I'd suggest that in the case of China, it's a case of confirmation bias plus, 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 um, with the additional layers being the fact that uh, China almost explicitly adopted developmental policies in defiance of Western injunctions to do something else. We were prescribing to them a developmental set of developmental practices and policies, which well, I think in 1983 became known as the Washington Consensus. The Chinese said, nah, I'd like to do something else. So <clears throat> they, 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 they wouldn't take our advice. They went their own way. That's annoying. Um, what's really annoying is they succeeded in spite of ignoring our advice, uh, or perhaps because they did. And then the other... So the third plus is the fact that their success has seen them emerge as a true challenge to the existing world order and <clears throat> to the dominant constituencies of that world order. So to go to sort of some of the... Re recap back to what I mean by this confirmation bias, I'll revert back to, um, to Colin's book and... Uh, <coughs> 
the marvellous phrase that resonated so much with me more than 20 years ago. So Colin's book, he articulates a history of Western images of China and how profound, how visceral, uh, how almost reflexive those images are in Western world narratives <coughs> about China. Uh, in particular, the image of the, of the Chinese authority figure. Um, the way we look at current Chinese leaders um, has long uh, and deep origins. Um, now of course, the Chinese themselves and their style uh, of interaction uh, contributes to this. It has a lot to do with it. If you think, as far back as, as, as many of your reference points might go, think of the, uh, the arrogance and conceit of Emperor Qianlong meeting Lord McCartney. You know, you don't have anything we want. Um, <clears throat> think of the way um, the, the interaction, you know, when the, when the Chinese were trying to deal with opium smuggling, smuggling and Commissioner uh, Lin Zexiu was sent down to, to Guangzhou and how he interacted with uh, foreigners down there and how that was portrayed as well. Um, think the uh, interactions that happened when you know, the Western powers were coming into China and the negotiations with Prince Yi up there. Think the, um, you know, the famous general, the, the, the Manchu general who was nicknamed Sam Collinson by, uh, by the British troops <clears throat> and, and the, um, the interactions they had which were you know, the capture of, of several of the, of the delegations and the, the incredibly brutal uh, behaviour there and the way that was relayed back into the Western world, the portrayal. Think of the Empress Dowager Cixi and the way she was portrayed to us as an image. Think of uh, you know, General Yuan Shikai who made himself president and how that was portrayed through the warlord era there. Think Chiang Kai-shek and how he's been portrayed to us. Think Mao Zedong, how he's been portrayed to us. In recent times, think of various Chinese leaders and how they're, they're portrayed to us at, at different points. The images that we hold um, for Chinese authority figures are largely those of sort of unbending autocratic malevolence. Um, of rigidity, of even <coughs> evil. In the 20th, in 20th century popular culture and popular media, it came to be rendered in a in nearly two-dimensional cartoon fashion in many ways. Think Fu Manchu, if you like. Uh, and more recently, of course, Hollywood portrayals of any number of Asian villains. Um, now, the phrase, this wonderful phrase that Colin uses to describe this imagery is stagnant oriental despotism. Just chew that around a bit say it to yourself in the mirror. Um, I love it. Um, it really fits. And to be fair, China has been a stagnant oriental despotism for much of the last 200 years. Um, and certainly long enough for these images to become very solidified <coughs> in our narrative. And latterly, in the reform and opening era, Deng Xiaoping's approach, the leadership's approach, was kind of to disguise and underplay the transformation that was happening in China. And also, we tended to ignore it a bit because they weren't doing it the way we recommended they should do it. And if you look at it, certainly as someone who was living there, working there, and trying to get attention, the attention of my head office or the attention of others on China, China didn't get a huge amount of serious analytical attention, um, analytically or commercially, really until the late 1990s, the early 2000s. You know, we knew it was there, we knew something was happening, but 
at a, at a <clears throat> major level, not a lot of attention was being paid. And that was, that was even exacerbated by events like Tiananmen Square in 1989. You know, I mean, if that isn't conclusive evidence of a stagnant oriental despotism, I don't know what is. So, because of all that, I think our notions of China, the prism through which we viewed, the nature of our narrative, stayed intact. We, we kept on getting confirmation for our biases. So what does all this mean? What do I think it means? Um, I think it means that we, the Western world, have to a degree misunderstood much of what has happened in the reform era in China. <coughs> I think we've misread a lot of the signals because we've filtered them through our prism of China being a stagnant oriental despotism. And then, dismayingly, in late, 19, late, late 2008, um, our world, the Western world, crashed down around us <laughs> in a large pile of indebtedness, uh, which we still really haven't come to terms with. And very dismayingly, the only guy sitting at the G20 table with a strong economy and a checkbook was the Chinese president. And up until that point, our misreading of the signals uh, had caused us perhaps not to give the Chinese enough credit or respect for what they had achieved. So the image of this stagnant oriental despotism and the resulting narrative, which tends to attribute malevolent intent to nearly everything the Chinese government does, puts us at something of a disadvantage. Um, I think by not having a very clear fact-based narrative about China's re-emergence, um, and by perhaps being anxious about that re-emergence, I think we've been potentially making some poor decisions with respect to our interactions with China. And by not giving credit where it was due, and not perhaps not being as, um, well, occasionally being disrespectful, I think we've compromised some of the goodwill that could have developed between the existing world order uh, and the emerging one. And that is my concern. And we can extrapolate that on, I'll, I'll come to a halt there, we can extrapolate that on to, specific to Australia in that Australia's position is <coughs> particular in that we are economically um, a significant beneficiary of what's happened in China, but we are spiritually part of the existing, spiritually and practically part of the existing world order, which creates this marvellous ambivalence that you see expressed in Australian policy with respect to China. The Chinese go, say to the Americans, look, you're stuffing us around in the IMF, we're going to set up our own infrastructure investment bank over here in Asia, um, so let's go. Anyone want to join in? And there's Australia. We, we hesitate because we don't want to piss off the Americans. And then we make up our minds to join late, and therefore we piss off the Chinese because we came in late, and we lost whatever influence we might have by being there in the first place. And that's just such a classic example of, of where Australia falls in this larger uh, set of conversations, and there's many other quite good ones. It's also, I think, an example for me of why it's imperative that we try to get away from the image-driven narrative and to a fact-based narrative so that we make better decisions. Uh, 
and that applies to nation states, to companies, to educational institutions, uh, and possibly to us as individuals. Uh, I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.